Um, If you have a Bible, uh, I would invite you to open it to 2 Timothy, the letter of 2 Timothy. As most of you know, uh, we've been reading through the New Testament together as a church, and in our midweek time, we kind of dive into some things that we've been reading in our Bible reading plan. But because of where we are in our Bible reading plan and the, the content that I've already preached on here, I'm sure one time for you was enough. You definitely don't want a second time around. Uh, we have decided instead of going with the reading plan, we would camp out in uh, 2 Timothy and look at it in its entirety. So anyway, um, if, you're, if you're new uh, to our midweek time or you haven't been in a long time, we do typically go through our Bible reading plan. If you need more information about what that is or how you can have access to it, I'll be more than happy to answer any questions um, after we're finished. But because of the verses that we're in, we've decided to hang out in uh, the letter of 2 Timothy. So we are in chapter 2. And we're going to look at the back end of chapter 2. We looked at the beginning of chapter 2 last week, and we'll finish up chapter 2 this evening. Um, I got a question for you tonight that I would love for you to respond back to me, even though I know you hate doing that. Um, What is something that you have tried to change about yourself before? Anything in particular about yourself that you would say, you know what, this is something about me that I have tried to change? Height, I, I heard weight, which is a common one, right? Height is a little bit more, I think, of a struggle. But I understand both of those responses. So um, others, things you, you've wanted to change about yourself or tried to change about yourself. Hair. Hair, there you go. Also an issue that I'm facing. Thank you all. I feel like everybody's just looking at me and saying, here's the things that you need to change. Um, Others, things you've tried to change about yourself. Not, maybe not things you want to change that can't change, unfortunately, but things you've tried to change. Here's a good example. There you go, right? Attitude, definitely one. I made a few comments myself. Weight was one of them. Attitude uh, was one of them. Others. I put another one down. Mine was how I respond to things. Oftentimes, I've tried to change my response on, you know, maybe it's anger being triggered or judgmental in the way that I see things or, you know, not as patient with my kids as I should be, you know, whatever the case is. There are plenty of things that I'm sure uh, you have tried to change about yourself. How, with whatever particular thing it was, what was it that was key for you to do in order to accomplish whatever the change was? Is there anything that stands out to you that's like, hey, this is something I tried to change and I was successful, which is probably not many of our stories. Um, I was successful because of this. Any, anybody have an example of that? I'm only asking because I have some examples in my mind tonight. So if you don't, it's okay. I'm thinking about me, obviously. Just what I do most of the time. Okay, got you. And so that was kind of a big deal for you when it came to whatever the change was, right? That was kind of the first step. Yeah, it's hard to make a change if you don't admit that you need to. Touche. What's that? You do need commitment. Maybe specific commitments. Things that you knew you needed to do in order to get to whatever place it was you were wanting to get to, right? Like that's the, that's the thought um, for me tonight. My, my example is pretty simple. It's one that's kind of normal. Um, but for me, the thing that I think about most about trying to change about myself is typically like weight and exercise or diet or whatever else you want to put in that category of just physical health. Probably that's one thing across the board that most of us would agree that is something that I have attempted uh, or tried to change about 
myself, maybe successful, maybe not successful. I'll let you answer that. But I'll be honest with you, um, since I had moved to Saltillo, which is like two years ago or somewhere around there, in that short amount of time, I gained 35 pounds. Now, I don't know if that's your fault or if that's my fault, but I don't guess blaming really matters at this point. I had just gained um, maybe more weight than I ever had in my life. The only other time that I can remember putting on weight that fast is when Kayla was pregnant with Josiah. For some reason, as she gained weight, it was like I was pregnant too. I don't know what was happening there, but anyway, for me, I was like, man, something, something's got to happen, right? Something's got to change. I cannot continue uh, going on the way um, that I'm going on. Now, I know that I can't keep doing the same things that I've been doing and just hope or expect for things to change, right? Like we can put all kinds of things in this category, but we know this is true, not just for weight and fitness and health, but it's true for everything in life. If we want to change the direction we're going, I've got to change the decisions that I've been making right? Like those decisions build to the point of changing the direction. Doesn't just happen overnight. I wish, I wish I could snap my fingers and 35 pounds would be gone and all the clothes that I once wore would now fit again, right? That would be great. Now I could wear those clothes and it would be entertaining, I guess, for all of us. Um, if you like uh, how a bundle of hot dogs looks, um, that might be an example. Or a busted can of biscuits, right? Like that's kind of the other kind of terminology. So I knew, for me, if, if, if the, the direction was going to change, the decisions leading to that direction had to change. Now, for instance, just to, to put this in the big picture, um, with, with health and fitness, this might be diet, right? You know, you got to start eating better. This might be um, some kind of cardio or consistency with the gym or workout or exercise, whatever it is. Those things are things you know need to happen. But before those directions can change, there had to be some decisions that were changed first. I'll give you an example. For me, my diet could not just click overnight and start doing better. For me, I had to rid my house of any junk food because if it is anywhere within my reach, it's gone. As a matter of fact, when me and Kayla first got married, I couldn't understand why it made her so mad that if she bought a box of fudge rounds, they were all gone the first night. In my mind, they were there to be eaten. In her mind, they should last at least a week. I did not see that in the same um, light. And so for me, I had to get rid of the junk, uh, the junk food. I had to stop eating out. Like one of, one of mine and, and, and Corey, our youth pastor, one of our favorite things to do during the week is go eat places. As a matter of fact, there's not many places in the area that I have not tried. And in fact, I've asked some of you if you've tried one of those places before, and you're like, no. And I'm thinking, you've lived here your whole life, and you haven't tried these places? I've been here two years, and I've eaten at all of them three times. All right? So I'm like, okay, that's, that's got to change. And, you know, drink, like beverages for me became like coffee and water. That's it. Like no more anything else. I'm, I'm cutting it all out, right? Or, or running. That was something that I wanted to start getting back into. So one of the things that helped me was I bought a new pair of shoes. I felt responsible that if I paid the amount of money I did for the running shoes, I had to at least get out there and get some dirt on them, right? And so uh, that was uh, kind of a big uh, push for me. Also, podcasts and sermons and things I like to listen to, really it's the best time for that to happen. So that became a motivation for me. Like, I really want to hear the latest um, Corey Flanagan sermon, and the only time that I would listen to that would be if I was running. That's 
Give me a shout out, man. Matter of fact, if this sounds familiar, I apologize. It may be something that you preached before and I just took it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, or signing up for competitions, right? Something that you're training for that kind of pushes you to do better. Or the consistency with the gym. Can I tell you one thing that's helped me a lot with the consistency for the gym? I discovered that if I move my alarm clock to the other side of the room, someone's got to get up and turn it off. As a matter of fact, I've discovered I'm the person that has to get up and, and turn it off. And so there are, there are simple decisions that could be made in order to change the direction that my life was going. As I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about 2 Timothy chapter 2, I realized that our relationship with God is very similar to that type of process. We won't grow closer to Him just simply because we want to or wish to or, or are, are hopeful that something will change. The direction of our life to be closer to God doesn't happen automatically. We must make simple, basic daily decisions that will lead us in a direction to being closer to Jesus. If we want to change the direction of our lives, we must change the decisions that we're making. So I was thinking about that in, in the lens of 2 Timothy, and I was like, man, if you want to grow closer to God, you must make decisions that direct your life to him. You can't ignore his word or your time with him and then expect for you to grow and become more like him and closer to him. You can't live like the world and then expect to be close to God. This is precisely what Paul is reminding Timothy of in 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is precisely the truths, the reminders that he's bringing out to keep in front of Timothy to remind him it's all about the simple decisions that you make one after the other consistently so that you can head in the direction that God wants you to head in. In fact, if you've got your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to start reading in verse number 14. I'm going to just kind of process it as we go so that I'm not here with you all night long. And so I want to read the first couple of verses in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I want to show you a few things, in particular the reminders, the truths that Paul brings out for Timothy that I think are also really important for us tonight. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, look at verse 14. Let's start there. Remind them of these things. He's referring back to the faithfulness and the, and the, and the, and the soldier and the servant and the farmer and the, and the fighter, all those things we talked about earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which, by the way, does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. By the way, if you did Bible drill when you were a kid, you are enamored with this verse. He goes on, he says, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Ugh. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, I want to bring out this first truth for you, and it's, it's very simple. It's the approval of God. In these 
couple of verses, there's this overall picture of what Paul is giving to Timothy, of what he wants Timothy to do based on what God desires from his life. He gives him a few decisions to make so that he can move in the direction of God's approval. Timothy, you want the approval of God on your life. Here are some very simple things to do that will radically change your life and your representation of Jesus. Now, I want to point them out to you. They're pretty simple. The first one is discouraged debates. The first one that Paul kind of gives Timothy is found in verse 14. He says, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearer. Now, you got to remember, in the context of 2 Timothy, there are plenty of things that are at war against the church from the outside of the church. Paul's in prison. The, the, the persecution of the church is definitely in full swing. The world would do all it could through leaders like Nero and others to stomp out the fire of the church. But what's interesting is that it's as if Paul is alluding to Timothy, your greatest enemies are not even the ones that are outside the church. Your greatest enemies are the warrings that are happening against the church, not from the outside, but from the inside. In other words, since the devil was not succeeding on stopping the church from outside influences, he would certainly try to stop the church through inside iniquity. You see, the devil had had the people in the church distracted from the real things they needed to be putting their attention to. Rather than focusing on what mattered the most, they were arguing, as Paul puts it, about words which does no good. In fact, it's worse than just no good. Paul tells Timothy it ruins the hearers. Rather than Jesus proclaimed, rather than people coming to faith in Christ, the, church, the, the devil had the church in Ephesus fighting amongst each other about things that really didn't even matter. Now, I want you to pause for a second. I want you to think about these types of debates that are going on that are distracting from what the Lord wants. Obviously, his approval is not on this. I want you to think about those moments, envision them however you want to, and now tell me if that sounds familiar. It should because we're still facing these types of attacks. We're still dealing with people who should be on the same team, bickering about things that don't really matter, all at the sake of the one thing that does matter being forgotten. Through useless arguments and quarrels, the devil had the testimony of the church of Ephesus being destroyed. Timothy, us, today should be discouraging those types of arguments. How many people have, have been amongst our people and rather than leaving with glorifying Jesus on their mind, they left thinking, I never want to be around those people ever again. What a sad day that would be if you walk into a church and rather than seeing Jesus, all you see is the squabbling and the quarreling that's happening among their people. Paul reminds Timothy, discourage those types of debates and quarrels and words that mean nothing. Watch this. He points out something else to him that I really, I really love. He tells him to divide doctrines. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, this is verse 15. Look back at it. Do your best 
to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. What a beautiful passage of scripture, challenge for each of us who claim the name of Jesus. Are we presenting ourselves to God as one approved? Are we workers who need not to be ashamed? Are we rightly handling the word of truth? What is, what is Paul communicating to Timothy in this moment? Well, I think first of all, he's telling him that we are to be faithful to the word faithful. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. The phrase do your best is also translated just simply as the word study. It has a, an emphasis on focus and intention. Now, as you think about this, when it comes to the word of God, I don't know if you think this too, but there's no better book to place the study of our lives on other than the Bible. It handles every part of life and is useful in any circumstance or decision process. Now think about this idea of study and the amount of studying that we do in our world today. We put a lot of study into a lot of different things. The question presents itself, how much do we spend? understanding the truths of God's word like we do other things in our lives. As a matter of fact, I looked at some of the, 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 the longer majors in, in study in college and stuff like that. I, here's what I came up with. It takes seven to eight years of intensive training to become a medical doctor, if you're smart and three or four additional years to become proficient in some highly specialized field of medicine. Then it takes a lifetime of continuous study for the doctor to stay up to date with the developments and changes that are always happening in his field. Who in the world would want to do that? They're crazy, right? I looked up a lawyer. You know, it takes around seven years for someone to become a lawyer. I wish Ed was here because I bet it took him like 15, but we won't, we won't tell him that. <laughs> This is only accomplished after getting accepted into law school. Then the student has to pass the bar exam. And then the lawyer will spend the rest of their lives learning constantly as the law changes and how it should be appropriated to different things. Listen, I thought about ministry. You may not know this, and that's okay. But to receive a, a master's level in ministry, a person would spend, on average, seven years to obtain. Now, that may be because preachers aren't exactly the smartest people. I'll only speak for me. I won't speak for any other uh, preachers that might be in the room. But that it may be because of our level uh, of intelligence, I don't know, but if that person wanted to pursue doc doctoral work in ministry, whether practical or professional, it would probably take an average of another three years, or in my case, a, a lot more of them, to be around something like 10 years worth of education. Now, this is someone to be classified as the most advanced in ministry, but think about this. They still would have only a surface level understanding Understanding of God, and then they would spend the rest of their lives learning how much they actually do not know. Interesting. Why did I go to school at all for what I'm doing? I, I don't really know. Maybe I should rethink my entire life at this moment. I, I'm not, but maybe. Now, the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8, although highly educated, didn't even try to claim that he could understand the truths of God, but in fact had to be shown what God was wanting to say. I, I, I give you all of this about study just for you to imagine for a second the complexities of God and what this book actually has for us. The Bible is a huge book with many different themes and stories. It was written over a period of some 1,500 years. It was written by some 40 
men from various backgrounds, cultures, walks of life. In fact, the study of biblical truth is a science all of its own known as hermeneutics. A person doesn't become a master mechanic by reading an article about a car. People don't become mathematicians or, or astronomers or nuclear physicists or biochemists or historians or many other professions by taking one class at a junior college. It takes intense study to become an authority on any subject. Now think about that for a moment. What is it that Paul is telling Timothy, and in my opinion, all believers across the globe? It's showing us the beauty of our commitment to God's word. We should be studying, doing our best to claim the truths of God. We're spending in every other area. How many of us spend that type of intensity on, on the study that matters most? Paul reminds Timothy, hey man, you, you should spend some time studying what's in this book, presenting yourself to God. Possibly Paul had in mind the judgment seat of Christ. The word translated approved here uh, is used of coins and metals that are tested in the fire to prove their worth. The Bible tells us there will come a day where what we've done will be tested. Friend, we are to be faithful to the word, dividing Dividing the doctrines of truth. Let me show you this too, though. We are to be familiar. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. The word for worker denotes the idea of hard work and intense labor. What an awesome notion that studying the word of God would be as rewarding as a hard day's work as we intimately dive into the truth of the Lord. There are... There are many, many different things to study throughout the Bible. They've been broken down into so many different topics, whether it's theology, the study of God, or Christology, the study of Christ, or pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, or bibliology, the study of the Bible, or soteriology, the study of salvation, or eschatology, the study of end times, or ecclesiology, the study of the church. Listen, the list could go on and on and on of ologies that, I'm going to be honest, I, I don't even really know, but there's smarter people out there who've written really big books that can probably uh, help you. But the only reason I bring all all of this up is to signify the many things that people differ on throughout the Christian world. If we're not studying God's word properly, we'll have no idea how to combat the lies of false religions and cults and other crazy things that are out there today. There are so many religions that take away from the character of God while others add things that God has never commanded. We'll never know where to stand if we don't study. We are to be faithful to the word. We are to be familiar with the word. We are to be focused on the word. That should not say faithful. It should say we are to be focused. It's a long day. I'm sorry. Rightly handling the word of truth. Listen, this could mean so many things. It could mean to know how to appropriate scripture for particular situations. It could mean to always be straightforward and not try to water anything down. Either way, both are good and both are true. It takes dedication to the word to know where things are and who scripture is speaking to and take so many different disciplines as we dig deeper and deeper into the Bible. Now listen, you're like, Danny, that is so much to do with when it comes to the word of God. I hope you feel that intensity, not because you can't do it, but because you get to live within the pages of this book every day to guide your every step, your every move, your every decision. Why spend time with so many other things when you can spend time with the Lord? Listen, I'm not saying it won't take a little bit. It might take everything. As a matter of fact, there's an old story told of Winston Churchill and a guy by the name of, a, a, a missionary by the name of Harold St. John. 
it's said that whenever the drums of World War II were stilled and uh, men turned hopefully to the pursuits of peace, they soon discovered that their dreams were turned into a nightmare. A leader like Winston Churchill was appalled, and it occurred to him that he had no idea what he could do to help uh, 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 you know, deal with the problems that he was facing. And so he went to the Bible, and he knew that there were, uh, there were things in there that would shed light on his path as he sought to guide his people along the perilous paths of peace. But who, who could he get to shed light on these things. And so after diligent inquiries, he chose a former missionary named Harold St. John. He was a gifted Bible teacher and one who was at home in the prophetic word. Arrangements were made for the two to meet. And for the better part of a day, the great statesman sat at the feet of one of God's choicest saints as the great Bible teacher took him through the scriptures. As the two men parted at the end of the day, Churchill said to his new friend, Mr. St. John, I would give half the world for your knowledge of the Bible. And Mr. St. John acknowledged the compliment and quietly said, Sir, I gave all the world to get it. Friends, I'm not saying it's going to come easy. I'm not saying you can just sit on your couch and do nothing and the word of God will just somehow magically get into your mind and shape and transform your life. It won't. There have to be decisions that are made that you will head in a direction where you will be more like Jesus. If you never pick it up, if you never spend any time with him, it's never going to change. Winston Churchill wanted to know, what do I give to get it? St. John said, I gave it all to get it. He knew what he should be spending time with, and he gave everything he had to know God deeper. This is what Paul is reminding Timothy of. Discourage debates, divide doctrine. Watch this, destroy differences. Back at verse 16, he says again, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. As a matter of fact, he uses the word, and their talk will spread like gangrene. I don't know if you have any different translations in here, but the the New Living Translation uses the word cancer. It doesn't use gangrene. It says it'll spread like cancer. The King James Version, forever might have that, uses the word canker, spreading sore that eats away the flesh, and if not dealt with properly, can cause death. This is the picture that Paul is putting before Timothy. This type of of talk, this type of yeah-yeah, and this type of bickering, this type of irreverent, Babel, which might be translated best as worthless, foolish talk. If they're not careful, it will ruin what the Lord is trying to do. Don't we see people doing this, whether it be people in our own churches or people outside in other denominations that just continue to put up barriers for the church of God? He tells him another thing when it comes to the approval of God. He says, develop dependence. I love verse 19. This one is so uh, beautiful for me. I love the, the phrase, but God's firm foundation stands. How many times in the letter of Second Timothy, has Paul made such an absolute claim. I may not be faithful, but God is faithful. I may be bound, but the word of God is not bound. My foundation may be shaky, but God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. He's telling him, depend on Jesus. Above everything else, Timothy, it's never going to be easy. There's going to be plenty of decisions that have to be made. If you're going to continue to walk after Jesus, depend on him. Jesus already said this 
to Peter in Matthew 16, 18. He said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. No better foundation. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven? He said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Friends, listen to me. Let the winds and the storms come. Bring on the challenge. God always wins. It's firm foundation. I love the reminder of Timothy that growth in our relationship with God is so dependent upon obedience to Jesus. We want the approval of God. It comes with simple decisions that move in the direction that he desires for our lives. I got to hurry up because I spent way too much time there. Secondly, I want to show you this truth, the appointment of good. I love it. Decisions that are moving in the right direction. Not only the approval of God, but the appointment of good. You say, Daniel, what are you talking about? Look at verses 20 and 21. We'll keep going. Paul goes on. He says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Very interesting passage of scripture. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. There's that little phrase at the end, ready for every good work. That is the appointment of good that Paul is reminding Timothy of. The appointment seen in the use of the vessels. Verse 20, there are some that are gold and silver. There are some that are wood and clay. Some are for honorable use. Some are for dishonorable use. You say, Danny, what is he talking about? He's talking about the difference between those who are following Jesus and those who aren't. What's interesting is that the house is the same. Think about that picture. Jesus gives it to us in several ways. He calls it the, the wheat and the tear, right? You've read about this before. He talks about the, the, the wolves and sheep's clothing. We know churches all across the world, probably not ours, but other churches, right, that have people who are fake, they don't really follow Jesus, but they try their best to fit in with the rest of everyone else. And Paul would say, listen, there are some that are gold and silver. There are some that are wood and clay. The only ones, the only ones that are serving the Lord are the ones that will show themselves as they are proved and they are tried. You know what happens with wood and clay? it gets messed up. You know what happens with gold and silver? It's on a firm foundation, never to be ruined. Some are good, some are bad. The appointment is seen also in the ugliness of the verdict. Say, Danny, what do you mean? Verse 21, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Listen, it's an ugly mess, what we are. And the verdict is certainly ugly for those who are dishonorable, but for those who will come to Jesus and allow him to change their lives, they in fact will be ready for every good work. The word cleanse is used so many different places as far as a thought, but it's only used in this specific word one other time in the New Testament. It comes in a very uh, dark moment in the history of the early church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when Paul writes about a young man who is doing some despicable 
sexual things with his father's wife. And in there, Paul writes this phrase in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He uses the same word for cleanse. He's talking about the, the feast of unleavened bread. He's talking about what follows the Passover celebration, where the people would cleanse their house of all leaven for a week of celebration. The leaven represented sin. They were cleansing their houses from all that was destroyed. Despicable. Why? Because they wanted to follow after Jesus. Paul's reminding Timothy, cleanse that junk from your life. Get rid of those sins. Follow after Christ. I've got good work. I've got things I want to do. God's got a plan. He's got a purpose. Don't hinder what he's doing because of the junk that you continue to keep in your life. He builds on that, by the way, with this next truth, the absolution of garbage. He goes on in the same vein. In verse 22, he says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. He's like, get rid of it. That garbage, be done with it. Throw it out. Be finished. He tells him, Paul tells Timothy to flee. Flee youthful passions. He was talking about lusts of all kinds, but specifically sexual lusts. As James put it in chapter 4, verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Get rid of it. Resist it. Turn your life to the Lord and allow those things to be gone. There are so many examples on both sides of this particular battle. I'll give you a good one. Joseph did exactly what Paul is talking about here back in Genesis when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. He got out of there so fast it ripped his shirt off of him. He took flee in a very literal sense. I'm getting away from this junk. But what about David when he didn't flee and was enticed by temptation and brought judgment upon himself when he took Bathsheba when he shouldn't have? Or what about Samson who was enticed and gave in to the seduction of Delilah and lost the very blessing of God? He says, don't be like that. Flee, Timothy. Run from those things. Head in God's direction. He's made provision for us through righteousness, through faith, through love, through peace. He tells Timothy not just to flee, but to forget. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Forget that junk. You know they only breed quarrels. He wasn't to get sidetracked with those things. He was moving in a new direction, one after God. That meant he would throw out all the old garbage and the old way of life in order to follow after Jesus. Now watch this last one. The acceptance of gentleness. This is the last truth he brings out to him. These particular decisions moving him in a direction after Jesus. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Look at verse 24. Let's wrap it up. This, this last couple verses. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps, I love this, watch it. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I have thought, when I read this passage of scripture, I have thought over and over again about the occurrences in my life where instead of gentleness, I chose anger. Instead of gentleness, I chose judgmental. Instead of gentleness, I chose you fill in the blank. I could give you more stories than we would want to hear about of where I reacted in a way that was absolutely absurd. You know what's interesting about those moments? You 
never think about that if you think you're never going to see that person again. But can you imagine the, the horrified look on my face when I'm standing up in the pulpit to preach on a Sunday morning and I see the guy that I mistreated in town? He's a visitor wanting to meet Jesus. Can you imagine how much he's listening to the gospel to a guy who just acted like an absolute buffoon? Of course he's not. Listen, we may not know who we're going to encounter. We may not know the opportunities that the Lord's going to bring back up. But Paul's reminding Timothy, accept gentleness. It may be easier to lash out. You may even be justified by this world's standards to fight back. You may everything in you really deserve to do what you're about to do. But what if it's in light of the gospel of Jesus? What if your every action is with the thought of could this bring them closer to Christ or further away? How how much does that change the way you respond, change the way you react? What if you knew that in that moment, what you chose or did not choose would depend on whether or not their faith would be placed in Jesus? Would that not change the reactions that you give, the responses that you make? Correcting with gentleness is what Paul told him. Is that not the greatest picture of Jesus? I mean, think about it as he's been beaten, as he's been placed on a cross. Think about his responses to, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, right? Think of his responses of, it is finished, he has taken it all so that we could be saved. Think about the gentleness that he became against all of our sins so that our lives could be changed forever. Paul's reminding Timothy, have this same mind, this same attitude, this same response. You might have the opportunity through this moment for somebody to meet Jesus. Listen, the gospel should be a focal point in our lives, not an afterthought. And you say, Danny, what in the world is happening? Well, I'm going to give you this last thought. I wonder what decisions you need to change so that the direction of your life can be changed. Listen, if you want to be closer to Jesus and you keep doing everything that you were doing th this past week that only drew you further away, if, if, if that's what you continue to do, the direction will never change. I cannot, actually that doesn't make sense, can't make that statement. I was going to say if I keep heading west, I'll never head east, but wait, I think it, just, anyway, I guess it just happened. Three lefts, two lefts don't make a right, but three do or something like that. Anyway. If I keep heading the direction away from God, right, I'm, I'm never going to get back to him. At some point, those decisions have to change so that I'm heading toward Jesus. Maybe that looks like seeking the approval of God by obedience to his ways. Maybe that looks like confessing your sins so that God can cleanse you and appoint you for good rather than sinfulness. Maybe that looks like absolving yourself of the, the garbage in, in your life. Maybe that looks like accepting gentleness as your response and not hate or anger or bitterness. Listen, I, I don't know everything that God wants to change in you or even everything that God wants to change in me. Whatever God wants to change in you, the truth still stands. Our direction can never be changed unless our decisions are changed. And so I just wonder tonight, as Timothy is challenged by the Apostle Paul, which really wasn't even just for him, it was for us, as we reflect on these verses, these words, as we reflect on these reminders and truths from, from Scripture, what is it that the Lord is trying to show in me and in you that needs to change? What decisions need to be different tomorrow so that, so that instead of further from God, my direction is heading closer to God. Friend, it starts with simple decisions. Will you decide to make those as you move forward serving Jesus, the gospel, the focal point, not yourself?